The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the episode number 22 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I have been privileged to as a result of my current employment. And I will knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. So I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. So the media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. Again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So, great show last week with Nick Stamos. My man's a real cybersecurity player in the sense that He knows what it takes to be an entrepreneur, especially in this space. He knows the cybersecurity space really well. And one of the most interesting things that he said, if you didn't hear the show, was about his opinions and views on whether or not there's a cybersecurity bubble. So his take was really, really interesting. He had some very thoughtful and I thought influential things to say. So if you didn't hear the show, I urge you to find your favorite playback medium. Find Task Force 7 there. Subscribe to the show and look for the 21st episode. It's named... Are we in the cybersecurity bubble? It's with special guest Nick Stamos. He's the CEO of eShare. So you can find all prior Task Force 7 radio episodes for playback on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, and on Player.fm. So we're everywhere. You can't miss us. Check us out. TF7 radio playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And please don't forget to subscribe to Task Force 7 on your favorite playback medium. So you can also learn all about TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platforms. Just follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. Especially check us out on Twitter. So we've been pretty good with tweeting lately, and I mentioned it last week as well. But we're getting really better at it. We're really starting to pick up. There's lots of great information about TF7, our show, our guests. And we're just going to keep the the cybersecurity information coming. We're sharing information with our partners as well. Uh, Signet, we're retweeting a lot of stuff that's going on there. It's great stuff going on over at Signet. So check us out on Twitter at TF7 Radio, and and you can keep up with all that information about the show. So I'm excited to interview our guests tonight in the second and third segments of the show. We're going to have Debbie Christofferson on the show. Debbie is currently a principal with Sapphire Security Services. She's a contractor with the Cloud Security Alliance in Seattle, Washington, and she chairs the CISO Advisory Council, and she's also on the board of directors for the Information Systems Security Association known by most cybersecurity professionals as the ISSA. So Debbie's a a Fortune 500 enterprise-wide information security manager with global experience across the U.S. and me and APAC. So she's very strategic. She's got a a huge strategic cybersecurity background. She's a successful leader, and she's a consultant who provides advisory risk management services in the cybersecurity space. So one of the reasons that 
from having her on the show is that she knows what it takes to succeed in this business. All right. She knows what it takes to succeed in the cybersecurity space. And she knows security from the ground up. So she authored a, a book on women in cybersecurity, which we're going to ask her about as well. Um, and she speaks and writes on cybersecurity topics on, and women in security often. So we're going to ask her all kinds of questions. It's not going to be on one subject. We're going to get, we're just going to tap all the experience to, from her that we can and get as much value out as the interview as possible. But right now, I'm here with one of our frequent guests, Tom Pager, the CSO of Newstar, to talk about Apple's recent decision to host their encryption keys for Chinese customers in China. So, Tom, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you. Hey, thanks for having me back, George. Pleasure to be here. Hey, so I'm glad you're here because you and I both come from the government and we have similar experiences. And, and I know that uh, we might even have some different opinions about this. And so that's why it's great to have us to, uh, both talking about this at the same time. So here we go. My, my take on this is uh, Apple completely denied the FBI and the United States government any help, any assistance, or any access to a dead terrorist iPhone after he goes on a kill-crazy rampage in San Bernardino, California, killing 14 innocent people. And then now that they announce that they're going to kowtow to the Chinese government's demands to not only keep their Chinese customers' iCloud data on Chinese servers, but they're also going to store the encryption keys in China as well. So uh, Tom and I are going to tackle this issue in, in, in a few minutes, and 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 give a little back and forth. But first, a few comments to the sort of level, seven, level set the, the situation here as I see it. The privacy versus security debate is one of the most difficult debates in cybersecurity to have because it's one of the biggest problems we face in cybersecurity today. We have terrorists running around out there using encrypted technologies that law-abiding citizens use to protect our privacy rights as free citizens of the world. And these terrorists use these same technologies to communicate with each other in a way that shields their conversations and criminal data from law enforcement officials. And they are using these technologies to further their atrocious acts of terrorism. And it deeply troubles me, and I know it deeply troubles you too, and it should trouble us all. So the, the conflict between privacy and security is still contentious. But Tom, I still land on the privacy side of the debate because I don't believe we can let these terrorists erode our freedoms. And quite frankly, the government does not have a good track record in keeping secrets, whether it's securing data or, or not abusing the FISA court. I'm not going to get into that right now. That's a whole other story. But, Tom, what's your take on the privacy versus security debate? I mean, I think we're talking specifically about what's going on with Apple. I think there's a bigger picture here. I do agree with you that as a security expert, we're, we're developing great tools to keep uh, people's privacy, uh, make sure that we can do things without the government or governments listening in or others using it against us. But we also have to be careful because we don't want it to be used uh, for terrorists to be able to communicate. If you look at Apple uh, and what's going on in China, I do think it's a more of a global trend we're seeing where the, nas- the nations of the world are trying to restrict um, privacy to their citizens. So we're seeing it in Russia. There's some pretty strict rules going on now. Um, the general data protection uh, regulations over in Europe, GDPR, which is uh, going into effect May 25th, uh, basically kind of similar to what China's asking for. The data needs to be hosted in a cloud here. The keys need to be managed here. If, they, you know, if it's their citizens, you've got to protect their data, all this. And it, with GDPR, I think it's 4% of global revenue can be a fine that you can incur if you don't follow the proper procedures and, and, and regulations. So we talk about not helping the FBI in the U.S. I, I do agree that 
it's frustrating from the terrorist angle of that, but there, there wasn't like a law there, there you know, they they were working with the laws like, Hey, you know, we're going to subpoena you. We're going to do this. They're saying, Hey, we can't do this. We can't do that with the China issue, the Europe issue, the Russia issue. These are, these are laws. And it's like, if you want to operate in our world, this is what you got to follow. And so does I, anybody, I don't know. anybody really believe that the cyber, loose cybersecurity laws in China are there to protect the Chinese citizens? I don't necessarily that, but if you're if you're Apple or any company that wants to work there, you basically say, okay, either I just can't operate in China because the law is now I have to store these keys there and I have to use a Chinese operated cloud uh, or Russia or wherever it be, or I just don't operate. And I think that's a bigger question: Do we want to make silos where you know the U.S., U.K., Australia, Canada, we all follow? You know, we all use Apple products and maybe China uses like Alibaba products and uh, maybe Europe only uses, um, you know, some some local company out there um, and you start getting these regional companies. So which would be difficult because now I can't take my Apple product easily throughout the, the world. Things aren't as compatible. So it's it's to me, it's a scary time because you're right. We're seeing the privacy attacks. Uh, we're seeing how we want to protect our citizens. We want to make sure people can't misuse it. We also want to continue to be global companies operating globally. So I think it's just a complete mess right now. It is a little bit of a mess. So there's not a lot of confidence here in the United States providing the government encryption keys or backdoors or what have you. So it just isn't there. So regardless, it's not the law that they, the government has to do that. But when companies has, have asked the government to assist them in some of the most serious situations, companies like Apple have declined. So you work for the government. I mean, do we, if we don't trust the United States government with this kind of information, how in the world can Apple look at us with a straight face and tell us that they trust the Chinese government? Well, I don't think it's necessarily that you trust the Chinese government. It's that you're actually not allowed to operate there unless you follow the rules. China will just shut them down. Whereas in the U.S., we're not, Apple's not being told, if you don't give us this information, you can't operate here. And I think that's what so we're just capitulating to the fact that so we're, in order to do business in, in China, we're going to have to make sure that your your data is accessible to the Chinese government. Right. That's pretty much what we're, yeah. we're talking about. Right? Yeah. So we, we, for the Chinese citizens. Now, do I agree with it? Absolutely not. Do I trust the Chinese government if I was there? Absolutely not. I mean, we've seen time and time again. We saw you know, the Google Aurora case, how Google pulled out because they were. They're basically reading information, the, the Gmail accounts of their, on their citizens, finding people who are going um, you know, anti-Chinese government, um, going out and arresting those people and doing even worse things than that. You know, do, I, do I agree with it? No. <clears throat> do, do I know what the answer here is? I don't because you don't want to get to the point where we're isolationists and all of our, our companies don't operate in China because it's too restrictive because then we have no view in there and we cause these issues where countries can't work together. Um, I do love the United States of America because we have freedoms that others don't. So as a, as a citizen of the U.S., I do know that the government has to go through some due process to get my information. And even though Apple's you know, securing my cloud, they're not just going to go easily share it with my government. That's a freedom I get as an American citizen. If I'm a Chinese citizen in China, I don't get that because my keys are stored in China and operated by Chinese operated clouds because that's what the rules are in China. And that's where the, the hard part is because we're... a f- a free country, and and we and we re- that's what U.S. represents. But we're behind in this area because we can't go look at our citizens, whereas others can. It's going to be an interesting time to come. So, so one of the reasons I'm talking about uh, this topic on this show is because uh, through when I look at the statistics for the show, the number two country next to the United States of listeners that listen to this show is China. 
And so I love that fact. I love the fact that we have a lot of listeners uh, tuning in from China. And this issue uh, directly affects them. And so I kind of wanted to go over this and, and talk about it in the first segment uh, to kind of hopefully get some feedback from them and on what they think and how they feel about this and how they feel about uh, if they think their, their, their privacy rights are being infringed upon uh, by this new cybersecurity law. So, I mean, the Chinese companies there are clearly going to have to allow some of the most valued information through, the, through Chinese citizens with the stuff that they store in the iCloud, some of the most personal documents, whether it be photos, pictures, videos, some other documents, whatever, contact information. Basically, what, 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 what Apple sort of bases their business model on, right? You, 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 you do business with us and your information secure. That's no longer going to be the case now. Right? I, I get the point that if they don't do it, they're not complying with the law and they can't do business in China, but there has to be probably some other, in my, in my, in my estimation, some kind of collective response and, and decision by companies from the United States and other places in the world to force a change here, or we're just going to have to you know, capitulate and, and give them the information. And that's exactly what's going to happen. So I find it, I find it difficult. At, at the very least, China is putting the almighty dollar above the privacy of their customers. I mean, that's the way I see it. You see it the same way? Or? Yeah, I think what... Uh, I mean, they have to make they have to make money, right? They have to comply, right? Yeah, no, and I, and I agree. And I think that uh, as a company, you, you want to be global and you don't want to lose that. But I, I do think there's some things that Apple or other com- countries could do, uh, other companies could do in this situation. They can, they can work together. They can protest, like you said. They can make it apparent that they're not really happy about this. And they could limit some things. They could say, you know what? We're going to operate um, a, a Chinese version of the iCloud, but there are certain things we're just not going to allow to happen in the cloud. We're going to put some restrictions on some things so it's not as good a product. as the, And maybe that'll cause some of the, the citizens there to you know, complain and say, hey, I really want this. And in order to get that, you know, there needs to be some better privacy issues that Apple can stand by. Or as Apple's doing right now, just be very clear, look, we're going to move it over there. We don't, we don't have the same privacy restrictions in China that we do um, in the U.S. If you're a U.S. citizen and you're using it, you, you're going to still be following the you know, same privacy that we, we've always offered you. But in China, it's out of our control because of laws and because of a government that's above us. So just make it very clear so everyone understands that and put it back on the Chinese government. If you want that, that's great. At some point, maybe your citizens will you know, not be okay with that. Tom, I appreciate you joining Always us. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Thank Thanks you, for making George. the time. <laughs> what do you have it again? Next time as a guest host of the show. Not a guest, but a guest host. All right. So we're going to take a quick break. But before we do, I want to remind our audience that we're getting closer and closer to launching the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. So stay tuned over the next several months. For more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network, we're going to solve some problems together. I promise you, Task Force 7, the premier cybersecurity network, get in the fight. We're going to pause here for a few minutes and some, some words from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, Debbie Christofferson. Don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you're listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. 
Moving forward can be difficult to do sometimes. There is always something going on. Many times, nobody else knows exactly what you're going through. If you are experiencing pain or loss, even something unexplained that is missing in your life, you'll want to tune into Go For It with host Joe Hausman. Joe and her guests will show you laughter and love. Sometimes you just need something a little positive in your week. Make that spot Thursday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, a principal consultant with Sapphire Security Services and a member of the board of directors for the Information Systems Security Association, Debbie Christofferson. Debbie, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to have you here. Hi, George. Thank you. I'm happy to join you. Great. So I'm interested to know, tell us how you ended up in cybersecurity. What's your, what's your cybersecurity story? Uh, when I worked at Intel Corporation, I've worked in IT my whole adult life, and I was an IT operations frontline manager, supporting uh, design engineering and then manufacturing. So these made me a strong fit when a new position to open up uh, supporting security and corporate internal audit at Intel. So that was quite different for me. My original hiring manager also supported me in that role. But my qualifications were strong because of my IT background. Then internal audit, when I moved into this role, that was definitely a dedicated cybersecurity role, global. And it offered um, a strong launch for me because it gave me an unprecedented view of corporate risk from the top down. Uh, No IT role offers that perspective. So that was really my launch into uh, security. And I performed that role four years globally at Intel. And I think that experience was invaluable in any of my career. So you've come a long way since your launch into the cybersecurity space. You wrote a book called Women in Security, Changing the Face of Technology and Innovation. And I was wondering, how did that come about? And what are some of the lessons you learned from writing the book? Uh, It came about because a publisher came on one of the Women in Security uh, webinars that ISSA hosts to uh, members and non-members, and I went on because I wanted to publish a book, not this book, and I wanted to hear what that that publisher had to say. Well, at the end, and the reason the publisher came on was because she wanted somebody to write a book on women in security. So I said, I can write that. That's that's my field. I certainly know women in security. So really, it was kind of came in my hand, and of course, I had the background to do it, and I went and got other women to be part of the book versus me writing the book only about myself, and truthfully, it could have been about men. There isn't anything distinctive except it showcases women, and what the book, the book profiles, of course, I read these women's chapters, and I have my own inputs about the field and security, and they're in there too, but we were really 
really creating the field when we went into it. People in my generation and where we came from and what we did, we created the foundation and the baseline for what exists today. It wasn't there before. And I don't think at the time, and I think most careers are like this, probably years too, you look back and you see that you created something that you didn't know you were creating when you did it. The other thing is, and even though the the field continues to evolve, it's young, but it really didn't exist then. So they're not all oldsters, but there's a definite difference between today and the people that brought security to the field it is today. Most people that work in security came from an IT background like me or the, the longer termers, and or they came from the military. A lot of people I know came from the military. So these things were reflected in that book. And there's, no, there's a lot of diversity in the field, more than people might realize who are trying to enter it, but certainly those of us in it see this diversity and the background that you need. So the opportunity is enormous, and it shows in the showcases for these different women that are in this book. So when you have a lot of experience in the consultant space, and you obviously provide advisory services for a variety of different people uh, in different sectors uh, about cybersecurity. So in your professional opinion, you know, what are the current trends in the cybersecurity space that you're seeing right now? Uh, well, clearly, there's a lot. Of, everything's online, so the risk is online, and it's not totally online. But since everything's connected, the Internet of Things, cloud computing, where your your workspace for computing that you're running your company and business with aren't necessarily in the room where you are, and you may not know where the data is. So I'd say the Internet of Everything is probably the big risk, and what that means, whether it's cloud computing or the drones or the cameras that are recording you everywhere, and how they connect to the network and how they impact our lives with privacy, um, the regulation that comes down with security. Those are risks to companies too. And the breaches that seem to be commonplace as everything is put online about us and our organizations. And how do you protect yourself for your company and how do you protect yourself as an individual and how do you do global business? So uh, IT, I shouldn't say IT, cybersecurity continues to evolve at, at the speed of light, just like the technology has. And it's really difficult keeping up with the technology. You really can't. It's always running ahead. So you're always running behind. So how do these risks that you just described impact corporations doing business with their clients? I mean, what are their what are their main concerns here? What kind of adjustments do companies have to make to deal with these different threats? They, well, first of all, when it comes to incident response, I think that they need to have a management a plan in place ahead of time for uh, business continuity planning and business contingency planning and how you're going to react and respond to a, a breach or a potential breach, because they may not all be breaches, how you're going to deal with that ahead of time so that you've thought it through. I would say that is a big focus today. And I would say also, what is the core business that you identify for the organization that you support? And what are the risks to that business for what you're trying to protect? If you work for the government, obviously, a lot of the data is public in the government, but you have some things you need to protect. And you also need to keep your infrastructure up and running to conduct business for the public that you do, the courts, whatever it is, the licensing that you're responsible for. And you have to define for the business that you work in what the risks are to you. Are they the regulations like the new EMEA regulations that we're subject to for global companies, are they 
Are they the technology risk? Are you a company like Cisco that has technology in the market that can be stolen? Uh, Those microprocessors that run windmills, that's technology. So what does your company do? And then what would put your company out of business if something happened, uh, like a breach? That's just an example. So I think those are some of the key risks that you have to look at. And it's going to be individual with your line that you do. What a a college like Arizona State University is going to do is going to be very different than maybe a company like Boeing that's an aircraft producer and state-of-the-art does to protect their business or the FBI. So it it varies by the business. So that's a great point. I want to dig a little bit deeper into that. So what are these major differences that managers have to deal with, say, if you're dealing with a corporation that's maybe a global corporation in the private sector versus you know, a government or a nonprofit organization. I mean, certainly managers have to approach these threats, I think, differently depending on what the nature of the business is. You know, what are these major differences? How do managers deal with that? Well, uh, I I work uh, right now in a nonprofit uh, business. The Cloud Security Alliance is a 501c6. Frankly, uh, ISSA is too. And if you look at the government, uh, I don't know if that's a nonprofit business, theoretically, right? Right. the government, when I worked at the government, they they don't want to be in the paper. There's a lot of politics around it. And it's, of course, uh, things get done without politics. But you are you are part of a government organization. So you have more bureaucracy. It's slower time to get things done. Uh, you may not be able to attract the best workforce, although there's creative ways to do that. So you... Um, like if your website were, were hacked and uh, as simple as defacing and this was on the news in the morning, you're probably not going to like this even though and it's going to be on the news. So you want to be in the news about a breach and, and what might be in the news about the government might not even be anything as to how it's reported, but it's reported negatively and politically the people who run the government don't like that. So they don't ever want to be in the paper for those kind of things, whatever's going on in the background. A place like Intel, and I really can't speak for Intel because I haven't worked there in a long time, but they want to protect intellectual property. So what does that mean? They can't protect everything. So uh, you look at what you're protecting and what you're going, to, how you're going to respond to it. But a company like Intel is going to have more dedicated resources than maybe a government does. And a government might be less efficient in how they're protecting things. Small business, uh, like nonprofits, they could be big. They may be doing nothing. That's not going to be typically true, we'll think, with our security nonprofits because they're going to know what the risks are. But the people running those organizations administratively might not might not know the risks. So a smaller organization is going to have less or none sometimes, or it's going to be outsourced. Or if you work in an industry like yours, you're probably going to be looking at it a lot harder. So it depends. So, so in, your, in your mind, does, does the, is the government less efficient in this space than the private sector? Well, the government's all over the place, whether it's federal, whether it's uh, Homeland Security, what the agency is, if it's state, if it's city. So these organizations may or may not work together, even inside their own organization. When you hear, for instance, cloud computing, there's these repositories for approving applications in cloud computing, and FedRAMP is the government repository. And on the private side for the Cloud Security Alliance, they publish standards and research, and they have something called a star repository on the private side. So with the government, you might think if you thought about FedRAMP that they are approving vendors that that have secure 
solutions in that FedRAMP repository. But what it, it might be when you dig into it is you might think that applies to all of the federal government when really it applies to a subset of the federal government that's required to do that and use that. It may not be universal like you think. So the government may or may not be less efficient than private industry, but it might have a lot more silos in some cases. At least that's what I've seen. And you might make assumptions that aren't necessarily true because they're funded from different sources. Uh, Some government people at the state level, they're hired by the governor, and some of the people are uh, appointed by the uh, elections, by the people. So they have more power, but they may not be more efficient. And you might not be able to merge those functions. So you get less, you get more spending and less, less efficiency. So I want to talk to you a little bit about cybersecurity initiatives and how they're built. And I know people, uh, how people come about cybersecurity strategies right now is, is really at the forefront of some of these conversations. So how do you build a cybersecurity initiative from the ground up? And I, I don't even know if those opportunities exist these days because it seems everybody has some type of cybersecurity initiative going. But I do know there's still many immature cybersecurity programs out there. So what do you got to do to get this thing going? Uh, you need to have a strategy and think of it longer term. And no matter what your size is or what your funding is to look at the risk. So uh, there aren't very many greenfield opportunities like there used to be. But as you say, there's still many, many immature things. So from building a, a cybersecurity program from the ground up, even if you did it and you looked at your own organization, which may or may not be mature, you would look at if if you were a public company, you might look at what audit findings you're having, talk to the people that are the key stakeholders in the business and see what they think the key risks are. Uh, you would set up a security steering committee, depending on the size of the company. You would interact inside your industry for the experts to see what the risks are in the industry you work in, such as healthcare, and uh, start building a plan for what your risks are and then how do you address them? What do they look like? And you vet it with your stakeholders in your company, which isn't just your line of management. It's the business lines that you're supporting for that business and how security impacts it. And it isn't just securing everything. It's also looking at the the cost of securing it and the lost opportunities if you do pin it down, uh, what the cost is to the company. Can they afford it? Where's the trade-off? And where do they need to be putting their money and their time? So you create a plan. And anybody who starts in security, if... I don't care who you are or what your role is. If there's no plan in place, you should be putting a plan in place, whether or not it's asked of you. Uh, And one of the detriments to this is we have a lot of people that have come up through the ranks as engineers, and sometimes maybe they don't know how, and maybe their management don't request it or require it. But it's a framework for what you're doing going forward. And it gets, it gets uh, support and inputs by doing it as a documented plan that is a living, breathing, changing plan that you get buy-in from your stakeholders as you proceed because you put a stake in the ground. And it will evolve as your risk evolves. You know, you were talking about cost there for a second, and I have to ask you this question because I've, I've asked a lot of guests and I get a different answer. Everybody has very different opinions and, uh, about this. But do you think it's possible for the security executives to measure return on security investment for everything that, that they spend money on? I mean, do you think it's possible to get a, a, a raw seat that's accurate that you can present to the board and say, hey, this is the return on the investment that you're getting for the money you're spending? 
You know, I, I, I think I think that's difficult. I don't think it's not doable. I think that you could put it on the table and try and see what the outcome is going to be, but it's difficult. And it also probably depends a lot, too, on how security is organized, where it reports, what's under that number that you're looking at. Is it distributed? Is it decentralized? What is it? I don't think it's impossible, but it's difficult and uh the managers say today, and I'm sure you've heard it, and as you talk to these people you interview, I spend all this money and I keep spending more and I don't get more. Am I secure? Which is what they care about. And I look back at security when I came into the field when it hardly has any staffing. And then you look now, and in some cases, it's not better. <laughs> it's like just more. So I see why they want it. And if we could, it would be good to do it, but it's not universally done today by any means and i think because it's so hard we talk about metrics but how do you do that so you're you're associating with the cloud security alliance and you know many people don't know what that is still and i was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the csa and what your role is there and and what goes on there the csa is made uh, they they create they create standards and research to secure cloud computing. So as cloud computing, actually the Cloud Security Alliance, I think is coming on 10 years old, maybe more. And when it came out, cloud security was just starting to be talked about. Everything's going to move to the cloud virtual. And, you know, it's made a lot more momentum and it's making more and more inroads. So the Cloud Security Alliance was created as a nonprofit, a not-for-profit, 501c6, to, to set standards around security for cloud computing. So they do standard setting, they do research, they do education and training, they have a certification. Uh, It's a research-based body, and it has chapters similar to some of the other uh, not-for-profit organizations like the ISSA that I'm on the board with, and there's others, ISACA uh, and uh, Privacy Association, and they, they all operate this, but the Cloud Security Alliance is predicated and in place to create that research and to set standards to secure the environment and to help um, to help bring cloud computing uh, to the masses more. And it is happening, whether or not it's secure, but it's really different. It's not like IT. It is IT, but it's completely different than what we've seen before as to what that infrastructure looks like. Okay, folks, we're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. We'll be right back with more from Debbie Christofferson after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you sometimes wish you had an advisory board to help you reflect on your career performance and become a better professional? Now you have that advisory board. Tune in for The Well-Heeled Professional with host Marta Alfonso. Each week, we speak with successful professionals that share their hands-on, real-world knowledge and reflections on critical elements of a successful career. Listen live every Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
In your business, are you on top of your PR game? PR is what tells your story. Whether it's the business itself, key people in your business, or showing your best face to the public, listen for the brand ambassadors. Host Merritt Hamilton Allen with co-host Gary Potterfield will discuss effective presentation ideas, building your personal brand, risk management, crisis communication, and more. Focus your business goals and PR resources. Listen live Fridays at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our guest, Debbie Christofferson. So, Debbie... We talk about the cybersecurity talent war all the time on this show. It's something that we revisit almost all. It's one of the biggest problems that we have in cybersecurity, as you know. So what is the hiring gap, in your opinion, and what can be done by organizations to obtain the cybersecurity skill sets that are in so much demand? Uh, I have to say that I've shut off everything to say that I want a job on there because you get so many requests. And I was at an event where I was a speaker the other day, and there was a recruiter there with me, a cyber a cybersecurity recruiter is what she told herself. And first of all, I'll say that uh, cybersecurity is not an entry-level field. And someone coming out of college with an information security degree, well, those exist today, so that's a good thing. But that doesn't make you ready to just come in. There's way more demand than there is positions, but I think that companies can be more creative than they are. And usually when the openings come out, they're for engineers and analysts that are highly technical and require a lot of background. So the, the growth in the field is enormous. I think that the recruiter the other day said that there's going to be like 2 million uh, openings uh, in the next two years, not just now. So I, I think that there is a trainable workforce and that the people can be transitory and there's probably places where people can come from to fill these because other things are declining in skill sets. In IT, a lot of people in IT can move to cybersecurity if they want to. I think there's opportunities that aren't being fully utilized and I think a lot of it might be the way that people open the positions and there is an assumption by some people, and I wouldn't say it's just pay. I think you can get creative when you're hiring about pay. If you work, if you have a government, if you have a small business, if you're a MSSP, a service provider, that you can get creative in how you hire. For instance, I work for the Cloud Security Alliance as a part-time resource, and I'm on a retainer contract. I don't think I would be working this job if that hadn't been offered to me. So there are more creative ways to hire people. And one of the gentlemen that was at an all-hands last meeting for the Cloud Security Alliance, he wasn't sure a part-time strategy was going to work for the organization. But I don't think the organization has a part-time strategy. I think a few people like me have been brought on as part-timers. Um, 
and I think other companies can look at how they're staffing and they're going to have to be more creative if they want to hire. And we also need to look at where we're hiring from. And I think if organizations want to hire people and need to, they'll create the workforce. I've yet seen a company not create the workforce it needs. They lead the way for what they need. So I think there's ways to fill this and it is a gap but I think the workforce is out there and we're not in an entry level field. So there also needs to be mentoring programs and what you have going on in your workplace to try to bring this, bring in what you need or hire it out, hire it out to experts if you can't bring it in. So let's talk about that for a minute. Let's, so when people are trying to get into this field, into the cybersecurity field, what do you consider to be career fire starters for them? Well, I think they need to get engaged in the industry. For one thing, uh, for instance, the Cloud Security Alliance and ISSA, I think they need to go out and get engaged in the field. So I think those are real fire starters. If I weren't in the field and I wanted to get in the field, that's where I would go. That's where I would go. Internal audit, I think they have trouble getting people too. But uh, I, I think entry, I think internal audit is a front end to security too. So you could get people from there, but they may not think they're a front end and want you taking their people. But I would go to uh, operations in IT and I would go to network people and they're highly talented too. But I think the real things that are really going to set your career on fire for you is to get engaged in the industry, not as somebody just showing up at meetings, maybe somebody like me that is on the board level. You really are fully engaged in your career and you meet people that can enable you in all aspects of your career that you would never meet if you just sat in an audience or you never even got engaged. And I meet a lot of people in the industry that lose their jobs and then they don't really know how to get started and not just in cybersecurity. And then I meet a lot of people in cybersecurity that think or that want to be in our field because it's so red hot. Uh, Everybody used to hate working in this field and now everybody wants it, Uh, but they're not necessarily as as qualified as what they think. So they can also go get certifications. Their certifications, for instance, the Cloud Security Alliance has a CCSK that doesn't require experience. You can take the certification. That's an entry level. And if you prepare for that, you know something because it's hard, even though it is an open certification that doesn't require experience. And there are other organizations that have certifications that can help you get started. So those are what I think the fire starters are. In, in the space that I work in. So you mentioned that a lot of women want to get into this space. And one of the themes that we also talk about all the time on the show is women in cybersecurity and how do we attract more women to the cybersecurity market so that we can win the talent war. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, what do you think about women in security and their opportunities or limitations in this job market? I don't personally see limitations in the job market for women. I don't. And I've been in the the IT space a long time. So, and I'm kind of out there. I'm, I'm an extrovert, but I, I consider my, I, I meet know so many people that work in security of women and I have a huge women's network. So given the fact that we're a minority, if you will, as we would be in many fields, I know so many women that are so qualified. So they're out there. So the question is, is uh, do they have opportunities? Yes, they do. You have all the opportunities that you want. And I see like um, one of the things I would do if I were women, which I am a woman, but uh, I don't see women like stepping up. I will go to an ISACA risk conference and you look and you count how many women speakers there are. And maybe there's two. Well, ISACA has a lot more uh, women in the field in the audit space than ISSA does. 
or presumably the cloud security because they're more technical. But uh, women uh, don't step up to speak at these conferences, but you can go invite them. And writing articles and publications, women are in there less. So we're smaller by uh, default, but I don't see the women stepping up as much, the ones that are out there. And this could be because they're busy, because we all are. So when I want women, for instance, to be speakers uh, on a program that I'm leading, I go get them. But the men, they always respond to call for speakers or they come and say, hey, if you need a speaker, blah, blah, blah. But the women don't. So I don't know if it's because they don't think of it. So I think they could showcase themselves more than they do and step up and step out of your comfort zone. Also, when you interview women, they will tell you what they can't do. And I'm speaking generally. Obviously, this is not true across the board. Uh, they will tell you what they can't do and they're not that technical when they're just as technical or just as good as anybody else you're interviewing unless, you know, you have a real pro in front of you. But they diminish themselves or they, they tell you what they can't do. And the men don't ever do that. And they will come in and interview 100% for a position and maybe they're 60% qualified, but the woman will make sure that you know that distinction. So I think there's, there's not, there are unlimited opportunities for the women who want to do this. So that's my input. So I get a question all the time from some people about some of the women groups in cybersecurity. And, and, and one of the questions is, you know, why do women need their own group in, in the cybersecurity field? So not all people support this kind of, I guess, uniqueness or even think it's necessary. And that's both on the, 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 the male and female side, to be quite honest with you. But these groups are very popular, though with many uh, groups of women in the cybersecurity space. So why is that? Why are these these unique groups in, in the space that support women? Well, th- this is an interesting question because I'm having a, a conference this year for women, and I had it last year. I wasn't going to do it again because it was so much work. And I participate in some of these women groups and not others. And I've had a women uh, IT uh, mastermind, a small group that I had for a while too. It, it's a form of networking. And actually, if I were men, and, and uh, I'm not a man, I would tap into these networks for sheer market, for marketing value of these groups. But they're, they're, not, they're not limited to women. Right. And we don't exactly. talk about how, what awful that, men are or that men are holding us back. I certainly don't. They're not anti-men anything. The truth of it is, if you make them the same as what everything else is out there, why bother having one different? And the publisher for the ISSA Journal told me this once when I wrote up a write-up for a panel we did for women in security. And he goes, Debbie, this is vanilla. You need to go rewrite that. And I go, well, the women on the panel didn't want to say what they said on the panel. They wanted to soft soap it. So he said, if it's not different, why do it? <laughs> and I said, that's an interesting point. So to me, the women, when I go do the women, it's like my own network. It's like you don't have this network in the workplace. Sure, you have relationships with men. We all do. This is who we work with, our colleagues, whoever they are, have a wonderful network. I really believe in it. But the women, we're just talking on a different level, whether we went to happy the hour and we're all chatting amongst ourselves about things that are unique to us, not about how we work, but us as women. So we're like creating our network that doesn't per se exist in the workplace because we work in a predominantly male workplace. So it isn't in my case and from anybody I know, not unique about shutting men out, just making something to make us less unique in that workplace. But I admit if I go to happy hour with women, 
I would not put that on my calendar. And if I wanted to go to a women's event, I probably wouldn't say I was going to a women's event because the men don't all like it. And I don't blame them. They, they make jokes about it if they say it in front of you at all. So I just regard it as a, a network like if men went to the football game <laughs> in a way. Of course, I go to the football game some, but anyway, that's what I think it is. So I'm going to skip around a little bit because you mentioned the ISSA. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so you're, you're very involved with the ISSA. I, I, I went over your background on the first segment of the show. Mm-hmm. So what is the ISSA and wh- what's your involvement with that organization and, and what's your role there? Uh, I, I, first of all, joined ISSA when I left Intel many years ago, because when I left Intel and went out on my own, I didn't really know what I was doing, but sometimes ignorance is bliss. And I didn't have a network. I didn't realize when I left Intel that, A, people were going to value me for having the name Intel attached to me, that now I'm not valuable because I don't work at Intel anymore, and I'm the very same person, and I didn't have a network. I was really networked inside Intel, and I mistakenly thought that meant I was networked outside, but I wasn't. So I joined the local chapter because somebody else I had worked with at Intel was on that board, and I went and joined on the board. So I got engaged right away, not as a show up, and I did many things when I left Intel as a startup business person, whatever I was doing, I joined many groups and did many different things to see what fit. But ISSA has always resonated the most with me personally. And I got involved on the board and I was on that local board for eight years. And my last year, I joined, I ran um, in an election for the international board. And now I think this is my 10th year in the international board. And we serve two year terms. And I always fit. I I think that I'm really connected in my industry and I love my industry. And I get to meet all these people. It's just amazing that you would not get to do just by sitting in an audience, even in the front row. It's very enriching. And anytime something comes up, I can call somebody because somebody already had this happen or knows this, whether it's something personal in my career or whether it's a challenge or whether I need a template for something or what did you do about that? That's why, so ISSA is a neutral organization. It doesn't have certifications. It's a body of information security professionals interacting with other security professionals. And we're a chapter-based organization. So So tapping into some of your thoughts and some of your other experience, right? And especially as being a consultant and being in an advisory position to many different types of people and many different companies, what are the pros and cons of being a consultant in the cybersecurity field? Is this something that you advise people to do who are thinking about being a consultant? I, I think it's harder than some people think it is. Uh, I, I have good experiences and bad. Number one, I get to draw a box around what I do and I don't have to get as stressed about things because I'm hired for a specific role. Uh, two, when you go in, well, you don't have any benefits or vacation. So when you don't work, unless you have a company of people working for you, which then you're probably working 90, 100 hours a week, you don't get paid and you don't get vacation pay. And some of the people, sometimes you're isolated because you're not an employee. And some people treat me wonderfully. Frankly, uh, working for the Cloud Security Alliance is really really, really a good cultural experience. And they don't treat contractors or other people any different. You're all treated the same. I like that culture. And when I was at the state of Arizona as a three-year consultant, I was treated, I was treated differently as a contractor because legally you have to, but I wasn't treated differently in the workplace per se. But you don't get as many opportunities because 
I like a lot of autonomy and you have to earn that and you don't get that as a consultant. You come in as the paid expert and you work standalone and some of them will integrate you into the workplace and some of you bring you in that you're the be-all to the end-all, and this is not a be-all, end-all game. You work together for these solutions, and one-to-one equals seven, not two. So by isolating you and not having you interacting in the workplace, you lose a lot. And sometimes as a consultant, you're too specialized, and you get pigeonholed in something. And what I found at this stage of my life, I'm not going to do jobs I feel that way about. And if I don't like it, I'm leaving. So I don't walk out with no notice. I'm not immature. But sometimes as good as you interview as a consultant to come in at the employer, you miss something. So there's all kind of workplaces, pro and con. And you get exposed to a lot of people and you get to meet a lot of fine people. I have a lot of good contacts from consulting, even for as little as a three to four week job. So it has a lot of diversity. It has risk. And you have to sell yourself in every single job. And you have to go in and do it. The expectations are there. And you have to go get those jobs. So right now, a lot of them will come on your doorstep. But when I went out into this field on my own, that wasn't this, the, the case. We were in a recession. So that's my input on it. So in, in your experience as an, an advisory services professional, right? I mean, you, you go out and you talk to these people. And people in the cybersecurity space, they have, some of them have, they're very heavy on the, on the technical uh, skill sets. They're, a lot of times they're technologists. And they get a bad rap, I think, and for being, uh, not being able to be good communicators. So in general, do you see that cybersecurity executives know how to communicate to business executives? Can they speak the language of the business? Uh, What do you see there? What's the problems and how can we improve upon it if we need to? Probably the biggest problem is there are technical people that came from being background in engineering. Those are the people who were promoted up the ranks. And frankly, those are the people you're seeing as being more junior CISOs today where they're promoted up and they might not have those skills. They might not practice those skills in what they do. So, and you also, this field attract people. Some of these people that are really, really good are those back-end people that used to not be able to have to be out in the limelight, and now they do. And they're really, really good and talented. We have some of the most talented people in the world that work in cybersecurity. And some of them lack some of those social skills. We probably draw a larger amount of those people. And when they get to a certain place in their career, they will fail if they can't communicate at that level. I personally would advise those people to go to, um, there are all kinds of things you can go to, but I would send them to one of the 12-week Dale Carnegie courses if, if it were me because that makes them work on their speaking skills and some of their other skills that affect that, and that can alter it. Intel used to send a lot of their engineers to that course, not even in cybersecurity, but it helps you in all ways. So, yes, it's a real a challenge, and it does impede people from getting the job done. When I attended an NACD, the National Association of Corporate Directors, a local chapter meeting here in Arizona, Lo and behold, and the reason I went is a CIO was speaking on the panel that was a CIO at a company I had used to work for, and they started talking about the security people giving them these stack of reports, and the very fact that these directors sitting there in that room knew what pen testing was, they shouldn't need to know that at that level. That is a microscopic level detail that you shouldn't be discussing at the board level. So, yes, it's true. So you've been very successful, and I'd like you to give your opinion on what, to, what recommendations do you have to other people inside the cybersecurity field that they can do to learn about, to enhance their skill sets even more, to set them up for advancement, set them up for success, 
in the cybersecurity job market? Are there any general things uh, that they can do that might be a little bit different than other job fields? I would say, first of all, they should get involved on the board level or leadership level, if possible, on one of these associations that interests them. Might not be the one I'm in. Maybe it's OWASP, which is Application Developers. Uh, maybe it's cloud security, get involved and get involved at the leadership level. And I would say also to uh, get out there and speak and write more. And if you don't feel comfortable with doing that, you can do that in a small group setting. Uh, For instance, you might do, uh, when I did the privacy certification, which I don't hold anymore because I don't consider it as relevant and I let it lapse, but I led the study group for that privacy certification. Uh, I did the first one so that I had to prepare when I did it. And I've done study groups for the CISSP too, even though I have those. So you can lead something like that in a study group or one part of it without having to know it. And then you will learn more about it by doing it. And you get out of your comfort zone if that isn't your comfort zone. So maybe you're not uh, somebody who can get up and be a platform speaker, for instance, but you can develop your skills this way. And you would be writing things up, too. So you would be developing writing skills, too. So, Debbie, this is, that's some great advice. It's a great way to, to wrap up the show. It's a, such a pleasure to have you on. I can't thank you enough for joining us. Thanks so much. I want to have you back. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you, George. Thank you very much. All right. We've run out of time, folks. I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.